Well, continuing our look at the life of David, we come to the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel. We hope to look at the whole of this chapter this evening. I heard recently, as maybe some of you also heard it, uh, at the uh, D-Day celebrations earlier in the week, earlier last week, what uh, Winston Churchill said about the truth. He said that in wartime, the truth is so precious, it must be attended by a bodyguard of lies. What he meant in that case was all the plans that they had for things like D-Day had to be kept well away from the spies of Hitler. And so a misinformation campaign was waged to throw the Axis forces off track. Well, there is no shortage of intrigue in this chapter likewise of strategies and counter-strategies used in the time of civil war in Israel with Absalom seeking to set himself up as king against David. We ended the last chapter with the assurance that Ahithophel's counsel was so good that to ask him was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. That's how chapter 16 ends. And yet, by the time chapter 17 ends, this man of God-like counsel has taken away his own life. What we have here then, in this chapter, is the failure of a traitor. Or to think of it another way, here we are given the account of what it's like for someone to oppose God's anointed. Opposing God's anointed is suicidal. Or perhaps the best biblical title you could give to this chapter comes from verse 14. You could call this chapter, God defeats the counsel of a traitor. You want to look then at the events of this chapter under various headings. First of all, the council defeated. The council defeated. The first part of the chapter shows us how Ahithophel's council was given, but also how it was then undermined and ultimately defeated. And it came about in an unusual, unexpected and remarkable way. Ahithophel gives in his counsel to Absalom. The Bible even calls it good counsel. Good not in a sense of moral, morally good, but in the sense it was well crafted by Ahithophel to meet the needs that Absalom had and to accomplish what he wanted. Nevertheless, having heard this counsel and having agreed with all his elders round about on every side, it was good counsel. That's a great idea, Ahithophel. You've hit it on the nail on the head yet again. Absalom then inexplicably invites into the council of war Hushai, the archite, to give his view. And he expressly asks Hushai, the archite, to pass his verdict on the council of Ahithophel. Why would Absalom do that? It is strange. The first advice was very agreeable to him. It was very agreeable to all the men. 
It came from an impeccable source. They all thought it was great. Why risk undermining it by now asking Hushai? Hushai was already suspected of being a plant. There was already plenty of suspicions about why this man, a friend of David, would come back and serve Absalom. Absalom himself had voiced these concerns. Maybe it was a trap for Hushai. Maybe that was the intention in Absalom's mind. We'll get Hushai in. We'll get him to show his real colors now. We'll know if he speaks against Ahithophel. Well, he's really on David's side. We don't know. But Hushai plays things very cleverly. Very cleverly. Notice what he does. He implies repeatedly, he sows the seed of the idea that Ahithophel's plan was good for Ahithophel, but not so good for Absalom. Listen again to Ahithophel's counsel at the beginning of the chapter. Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night, and I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid, and all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people unto thee. Do you see what there was in the council of Ahithophel? And listen then how Hushai goes about Bringing that out to raise questions in the mind of Absalom. Verse 11. I counsel that all Israel be gathered unto thee. From Dan even to Beersheba as the sand is by the sea for multitude. And that thou go down to battle in thine own person. You see the point that Hushai is planting into the mind of Absalom. Advice of this traitor to David, of course, Ahithophel, was steeped in arrogance. It was good advice, right enough, in terms of accomplishing what Absalom actually wanted to do. But it was self-serving. It was not free from self-interest. Ahithophel intended to position himself as the one who had really accomplished this. And Hushai was able to subtly shine a light on the self-serving nature and the Absalom sidelining nature of Ahithophel's counsel. And Hushai spoke up for the person of Absalom. He said, you should be the man there. You should be leading the troops in your own person. Let not anyone else do it. You go, you lead us, you win the fight, you win the battle. Let it not be just 12,000 men. No, no, that's not enough for a great man like you. Get everyone from Dan to Beersheba. That's the most northerly point in Israel to the most southerly point in Israel. Everyone will come. Everyone will rally to your side. You'll sweep upon them like the Jew that comes down from heaven. There'll be none of them left. He wants just to take out King David and let the other people come trotting immediately back to you. No. Let's get rid of them all. That's the counsel of a Hushai. And so Absalom and all the elders as well are even more impressed by the counsel of Hushai the archite. And by the picture he has painted them of pomp and grandeur and greatness and victory. The idea of a grand assault. 
The glory of a stunning and overwhelming victory appealed to them. It wouldn't do for this to be just in the hands of a few thousand men. It wouldn't do for this to be an Ahithophel who is getting all the glory for it. It wouldn't do just to have David lose his life. No, let's do it properly. And of course we get the crux of the matter really. At the end of verse 14. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. To the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. From the moment we get there to verse 14. The end of the chapter almost writes itself. Once you get to that point, And you know what's really going on. And what God is about. Well, the end has a certain inevitability. It's so obvious from verse 14 that Ahithophel's counsel will be defeated, that Absalom will not win, and that David will be the ongoing king. God was in it. Why is God Working to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. But we're told to bring evil upon Absalom. Notice that. It's not to bring evil upon Ahithophel. Ahithophel is a real treacherous figure of the chapter in many ways. But the Lord's focus is to bring evil upon Absalom. Absalom is the key enemy here to God's duly appointed king in the chapter. Absalom is the pretender to the throne. And this is what happens to counsel that is designed to unseat God's anointed king. It fails. It always and permanently fails. And it will continue to fail when there are plans afoot To unseat the king. I want to speak a word of application in two ways. I want to make a broad application. And I want to make a personal application. Before we leave this point. Broadly first of all. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Is under the direct rule of the king of the kingdom. Which is Christ. It is his kingdom. He is the king. And by the kingdom we don't mean heaven. We mean the church of God. Whether in heaven or on earth. It is his kingdom. It is his to rule over. The son of God is our king. His word is our law. He determines what are the rules of the kingdom. What are to, is to be the behavior of those subjects of the king. Now there are many who attempt to unseat our king from his throne. There are many from out with the church of Christ who desire to see the church ended and finished. Who predict the ending of the church. Who predict that the gospel will cease and that Christianity will die. Now their true hatred is for the king himself. It is that they hate Jesus and therefore they hate the people of Jesus. They are utterly doomed and destined to fail. 
in all the plans that they might make against the church of Christ, they are destined, doomed to fail. The life of David in the Bible is a great evidence that God will not permit his anointed king over his people to be unseated. And if God would not allow it for a David, a mere shadow of Christ the king, he will certainly not allow it for Jesus Christ, his beloved son. And this is true for the church then. She will not be destroyed and her king will not be unseated from his position of authority over her. But there are also those from within, like Ahithophel and like Absalom. They are already on the inside of the kingdom. You couldn't get much more inside the kingdom than from David's own palace, David's own son, David's favorite counselor. These were the inside men. And they are attempting to unseat the king. And there are those still today within the kingdom who are attempting to unseat the king. Who are attempting to unseat the saviour from his royal prerogatives over his church. This morning we spoke a little about the Antichrist, the Pope of Rome trying to alter the words of Christ in the Lord's Prayer. But there are plenty of examples from within the visible church of Christ who want to cast his cords from them, as the second psalm puts it, and not be bound by what they see as the strictures of the gospel, not be bound by things that Christ says you need to be bound by, not be bound by things like Sabbath keeping, not be bound by things like marriage once and for all, not be bound by the terms of the word of God, and they must fail. They must, of course they will. How can they succeed? God has appointed their defeat. God has appointed to defeat the council of Ahithophel to this day. What a solemn matter it would be, friends, to be on the receiving end, as it were, of that God appointment. To be appointed to defeat by God himself. So it is, in this way, broadly speaking, an application we should make. The church of Christ, under the dominion of Christ, will survive. But let me apply this more personally as well. To attempt to undo the claims and calls of the gospel upon your own life. Personally, you who are an unsaved soul here tonight, that is the greatest, most foolish decision of your whole life. If you have determined to 
attempt to cast off the claims of Christ to your soul, where God says to you, my son demands your allegiance. My son requires you to submit in heart and soul and life to him. And you won't, and you will not, and you have not, and you refuse. That is the most stupid, sinful decision a soul can make. You are, without trying to offend unnecessarily, but it is a, the action of an utter imbecile to purpose to live your life in defiance of the rule of Christ. Without Jesus as your king. Casting. Him out of the throne of your heart as it were. Or, or perhaps better to put it. Refusing to allow him entrance. Or refusing to cast your crown upon his head. And crown him Lord of your life. That is every bit as much doomed to failure. As the counsel of Ahithophel. God himself is against it. And the day will come. When every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. But if friends. That comes in your life. After the day of mercy is past. Then you will spend. An eternity of hell. Knowing. That you should have bowed to him before. You need to take this matter to heart tonight. Do you want to submit to the rule of Christ in your life? Or do you want him removed from your life? Do you want his claims to impact your soul? Or do you wish that you could get free of it? And cast them behind? It is time to answer that question for yourself. Because in the answer to that question. Every single one of us here tonight. Is showing if God has appointed our own personal defeat or not. Let us come secondly to the message delivered. The scene and tension of the chapter then changes. It's very obvious by verse 14. Ahitophel's counsel has been swept away by the purposes of God. What happens then? Well then the message has to get out. Hushai's counsel has been accepted. But Hushai's got to get a message to David. Having persuaded Absalom. Hushai now needs to carry out the second part of the commission that David gave him. Which is whatever you hear tell to the priest. They will get a message to me. Will the message make it to David in time? There was a network that the priests had set up between themselves and their sons that was to carry messages back to David. 
And the chapter, at some length then, details for us just how this message is brought from Hushai and eventually makes it to David. The Bible could have just said, Hushai sent word to the king to escape across the Jordan River and David did so. That would have been the facts. But the Bible here expands upon what was involved between getting it from Hushai all the way to David. The writer gives that detailed and and exciting account of how this message made it through the enemy lines, how they had to hide in the well, how they ran for their lives, how the woman covered it over with a cloth and with her grain. We get a line of people, a bit like in Chinese whispers, except at the end of this, the message still comes out right. Hushai informs the priests. The priests use a female servant, which is here in old language called a wench, to discreetly head out of Jerusalem, out of the walls of the city, to a nearby water spring. The water spring was called Enrogel. No doubt it was a common enough sight to see a servant girl go to a spring for fresh water. Especially when it was so near the city. Being quite a much more pleasant water from that than from the well. So they go out and this wench as she's called goes out to Enrogel. Ostensibly to get water no doubt but actually to carry a message. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz. The sons of the priests, the sons of Zadok and Abiathar are waiting there. Waiting to receive a message. It's outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's a little bit more secure. But it's not so far as not to draw some attention. Being so close to Jerusalem. A young lad is sent out also probably to go and get water from the same spring water. And he sees something going on. And he recognizes what's happening. And he reports back to Absalom. And now there's a chase on the go. And Jonathan and Nahemaaz flee across to Bahurim. That was the same route that David had used when he'd fled from the city. He'd also gone up the Mount of Olives across Bahurim and over down the other side. And so they're on the same pathway. Bahurim was also, by the way, the the home of the cursing Shimei who had cursed David as he went. So not exactly safe territory yet by any means. But finding a man loyal to David, they hide in his courtyard down as well. And the lady of the house covers it over with this cloth and spreads grain upon it to disguise its true purpose. And Absalom's servants are then misdirected by the woman of the house. And the two, hiding down the well, come out again once they're gone and make their escape and manage to catch up with David and tell him he's got to flee. The message makes it through. And the message is flee. Get across, Gordon, uh, get across Jordan while you still can. The message is given in full, in time, and in faithfulness. And David and his men lose no time in acting upon it. David packs up his weary troops and marshals them up to Mahanaim, about 30 miles further north. Still on the eastward side of the Jordan River. Mahanaim is an interesting city. Mahanaim was the very place. You remember when, jo- when Jacob is going back to Esau. He's a place where he had a vision of angels. And he called it Mahanaim. It's also one of the Levitical cities. A point where there were priestly contingents. And it seems from Zadok and Abiathar. 
that the priestly contingent were generally supportive of David. It's also the place where Ishbosheth had established himself. When he was made king over Israel, it was in Mahanaim that his coronation took place, bringing about a civil war with David for years. And now David lodges there in the time of Absalom's rebellion. Well, the message gets through. The word of warning arrives in time. And you notice David and his whole camp make it safe across the Jordan. By morning light, there lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan. What is this? Well, for one thing, it is the evidence of the care that God has for his king. That God has sent him the message in time and ensured that it gets through. Also evidence the care David has for his people. He doesn't leave them. He gets them all safely across Jordan, not just saving his own skin. And it's the evidence of the love that they have for him, that they all go with him at his command, yet a further Fleeing away, not one was lost. Verse 22. By morning light, there lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan. Now I can't, when we read that, but help remember what the son of David, the true son of David, said when he said something quite similar in John 17, in our great high priestly prayer. He said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. But the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's a reference to the traitor, Judas, the Ahithophel of the New Testament. He was lost, but no one else. Here is the king himself. Not the shadow, not the forerunner, not David, but the reality, the realization of God's chosen Messiah figure, the King of Kings. And he too, hounded by his enemies, at the close of his ministry, he gathered his disciples together in that upper room. And during that time, he unmasked the traitor in the midst. And he handed the sop to Judas. And the scriptures tell that Judas went out into the night. It was dark. He went to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in his prayer after that, I have lost none but the son of perdition. Not that he lost Jesus, Judas. He wasn't saying, Judas has lost me. I couldn't help that. Far from it. Jesus is saying, Judas was never one of mine to keep in the first place. Though he was with me, though he was a disciple, he is not one of mine or I would have kept him. The fact that he went out in the dark is evidence of his treachery. And here's the point. Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost. And so David here foreshadows his greater son and Lord 
taking his men safely across the Jordan, and none of them are left behind. And so the Savior, too, takes all his people safely across the Jordan River of death. Every one of his people will be safely taken through death and into glory and into his nearer presence. Because the message of Christ that is sent to search them out in the highways and byways of this world always gets through. His word will always find all of his chosen ones, all of his elect, and call them with that great effectual calling, escape while there is time. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The city of destruction must fall one day, but not until Lot is escaped out of Sodom. Only then will the judgment of God fall. Friends, we can depend upon it tonight. You can follow God's word. You can mark its course. And you will find it always manages to get through to the hearts of the elect chosen people of God. Here in our chapter it makes it through in the other way as it were to David. But our true David Jesus Christ is safe as it were in heaven in glory. And yet his word is now sent out to find his true people in the world. And it always gets through. It always finds his own. It always searches in the highways and in the byways and the hedgerows and the bypass of life. The same gospel message comes to us. Escape and flee. Destruction is coming. And those who heed that word are always saved. Tonight then the message is delivered to you once more. The message has come through the gospel preaching in this place once more. Will you listen then? Will you heed it? Will you escape and flee from the wrath to come? Thirdly, the counselor dead. We have to deal next with the unpleasant spectacle of a man taking his own life. Now it is treated very briefly in our chapter. We will not unnecessarily draw it out. One single verse completes all that needs to be said. Verse 23. What happened to him? What happened to Ahithophel? Here, friend, is the fate of a traitor. Here, the counsellor is dead. Here is the son of perdition who abandoned following David. Had he sided with David against Absalom, what would have happened? He'd have been far from his home. He went back to his home here. He'd have been on the other side of Jordan. He'd have been uncomfortable through the nights, probably. But he would have been with David and he'd have been safe. He'd have been safe on the other side of Jordan. Instead of taking his own life in misery. As it was, Ahithophel stooped to the bitterest depths of this world. By taking the life that God himself had given him. By hanging himself. I don't want to pretend for any moment that I know what was going through the mind of this pitiful man in these moments. And why he chose exactly to do. It may have been pride when he saw that his counsel was defeated and that Hushai's counsel would prevail, perhaps he couldn't stand it. 
This is not a man who was used to having his counsel countermanded or undermined. His counsel was like inquiring at the mind of God. It was so wise. It was so well received usually. Perhaps it was that old chestnut son of pride. Hard and black. That led him to suicide. Perhaps it was despair. The bitter realisation. That his plot. Of which he was involved up to his very neck. Was now bound and doomed to fail. Perhaps he felt better to end his own life. And to face justice when King David swept back into town. Perhaps it was that. He was a clever man. He could likely foresee that by not following his advice. Absalom had fatally undermined his chance of ever being the next king of Israel. The game was up. And Ahithophel at least knew it. And perhaps he succumbed to despair. Or maybe he even saw that God had appointed To defeat him. He may have been able to read providence in that way. To see that this was not Hushai. This was God. It wasn't Hushai's brilliance. It wasn't Absalom's big head for glory of his own terms. It was God. That God was against him. A fearful state of mind that is. To conclude that God is against you. Whatever it was, it was a fearful place to be. A sorry state in which to pass out of this world as a traitor against God's anointed king. Now, of course, we have in the New Testament Judas betraying God's anointed one never ends well. Judas also went out and, you remember, hanged himself. And who can also tell what went on in his mind when he was struck with the awful conviction that he had betrayed the innocent blood. He tried, of course, to somehow atone for it by paying back the price of betrayal, the pieces of silver. But his end proved the truth of what Jesus said about him. You remember the most solemn words. The Son of Man goeth as is written of him, that is, he goes to the cross. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. Oh, what a dreadful epitaph to appear on your grave. Better never to have been born. But so it must be for all who reject the claims of King Jesus over their lives. It is true that not all pass into the night of hell by the way of a noose. But the outer darkness of a lost eternity is none the easier to bear if you go into it. In a state of being better not to have been born. An enemy of Christ. Friend, you have been born. Here you are tonight. You've been born and you've lived for years upon this earth. You cannot uh, undo that. The question then stands. Will your birth be good for you? Or not? Will life itself be a curse to you? 
Or will life, even this life that is now, be only the beginning of life with Jesus that never ends? What will it be? Stand against Jesus and you stand over the jaws of hell. <coughs> oh, poor sinner here tonight, repent and seek mercy for your soul from Christ. Fourthly and finally and briefly, the king delivered. We come now to the closing verses of our chapter and find the king delivered. Notice how it all ends. David begins the chapter fleeing for his life. He's still in exile at the end of it, but he's with friends. And they're all safe and the gifts start to pour in from every side. Ahithophel begins the chapter speaking like the authority of God and ends having taken his own life. Contrast David's safety at the end of the chapter to poor Absalom. What's Absalom doing? Absalom's still pursuing the plan. It's pathetic. Absalom's busy appointing a new leader of the army. Absalom made Amasa, verse 25, captain of the host instead of Joab. What's he doing? Absalom seems to be the only man around who doesn't know. It's all over. You know it's over already. I know it's over already. Hushai knows it's over already. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, know it's over already. Jonathan and Ahimaaz, their sons, know it's over already. Even the wench, the servant woman, knows it's over already. Even the woman who covered them in the well knows it's all over. Even Ahithophel, in taking his life, knew it was all over, but not Absalom. Absalom is still busy appointing commanders, gathering his troops, getting ready for battle, out across to Gilead, east of the Jordan, <coughs> in pursuit of David. And all of it, a waste of time and effort and life. And all the deepest futility. <coughs> but what about David? Suddenly it seems that friends start coming out of the woodwork. And they're an interesting group. And I think it's worth just looking at these friends as we close. First of all, we have a man called Shobi. Verse 27. Shobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon. An Ammonite. Maybe it rings a bell. Nahash, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon. It should ring a bell. When Nahash, Shobi's father, died, he'd been king of Rabbah and king of the Ammonites. David seemed to be on friendly terms with this man. Seemed to have come to an arrangement with him. And sent send greetings to his son, and condolences to Nahash, to the son of Nahash, a man called Hanun. Now Hanun shamefully treated David's emissaries and shaved off half their beards and exposed them by tearing their clothes. David came and camped against the city and destroyed them. Well, here's a brother. A brother of that man who despised David's condolences to his father. Presumably more of the spirit of his father than of his brother. And he now comes to David's aid. 
Maybe he wasn't always more disposed. Maybe he was brought into submission by the victory of David. We don't know. But either way, he now comes to David's aid and provides plenty of support. Next up is Machar, the son of Amiel of Lodebar. Maybe that doesn't ring a bell either. In one sense, it's very understandable why it wouldn't. He only gets a very brief mention before now. Macher, the son of Amiel of Lodebar. Lodebar means no place, no thing. It's a, it's a backwater. It's a, it's a nothing kind of place. But Macher had looked after and raised Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Mephibosheth, who until recently had sat at David's table and who seemed to have been left behind when Ziba sent uh, after David. Ziba had been the one sent to Lodibar to go and get Mephibosheth from the house of this man, Machar, the son of Amiel. That's where Mephibosheth was, in the place of nothing, in a backwater. But he was raised to the king's table. Well, this is the man who looked after this poor, lame man, Mephibosheth. And when he came into the scene, I would imagine that Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who dropped him in it, began to feel rather uncomfortable. But he comes. And then lastly, we have Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogelim. Barzillai is not someone we've met before. But he comes up again and again in the chapters that follow. He is an old man. He's 80 years old now. And David never forgets him. And never forgets the kindness that he shows. And Barzillai, because of the kindness he shows David here, brings great blessing to his family after him for the help that he offers David in need. Three very different characters come to help David. One, a heathen man, an Ammonite, submitting to David. Maybe that will be you. A godless man, ready now to submit to David, the king. Another, the true friend of Mephibosheth, not like Ziba. David's best friend's son was Mephibosheth. And this man comes and proves his steadfastness again. He'd been sort of obscure, but he comes to the fore when it really mattered. And the third, an aged man of wealth who won for his family great blessings. But all of them come on David's side. Can you find yourself amongst one of these three people tonight? Amongst the friends of David? Will you submit to him? It may be that David, that Jesus Christ the King as well, is campaigning against your heart as David campaigned against Rabbah. You're forced into submission to him, but nonetheless, you will find it a sweet service to come and acknowledge him and to give your life up to serve the true king. Come in that way, but come out on the side of the Lord. Or will you come out from obscurity, like Machar of Lodibar, this obscure person from this obscure place? Is it not now time to openly confess your allegiance to Christ? On whose side are you? The times call for it. There are enemies around. There are many who oppose Christ. On whose side are you? Or will you come 
like Barzillai and join the king now, seemingly from nowhere. But who knows, friends, what by coming to Christ, what blessing you will bring into your home, what blessings you will bring to your children to your grandchildren, to your posterity after you, who will rise up and call you blessed because you came to Christ. Where do you find yourself tonight? On which side of the great divide? Are you with Absalom and Ahithophel? Or are you with Hushai and with David and with Barzillai and with all the rest who are on the king's side? Choose you this day whom ye will serve. May he bless his word. Let us pray.